0: hear the word of the Lord. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground and a a mist was going up from the land and Was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. The delium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, "'You may surely eat of every, of every tree of the garden, for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die.'" The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Holy God, we give you thanks for your word. Your word, which you promised does not return void, but actually is here to form and fill our own hearts and minds, our lives to breathe your breath of new life inside of us. I pray that your word would do that by the power of your spirit, that you'd encourage, that you'd, it would strengthen, that you would exhort, you would bind us together in your great love. In the name of Christ, uh, we pray, amen. You know, um, you know, one of the hardest things about being a, a child uh, is being told no so often, right? Right? Um, you know, can I have candy? No. Uh, can I play video games? No. Uh, can I go to my friend's house? No. You know, maybe this is just me that says this to my children, but this is a, a common refrain in our home. And, uh, you know, when you're a child and you're being told, no, candy's good. You know, these are, playing video games is good. Why are you withholding these good things from me? When you're a child, you can't help but wonder, why don't my, my parents want me to experience joy in my life? Uh, why don't they love me? Um, Why do they withhold the best things in life from me? And I think, you know, sometimes, you know, this is actually how we can tend to view God like a parent who's actually withholding good things from us. In fact, maybe God's withholding not just good things. What if God's withholding the best of things for us, keeping them for himself? Um, Because when God's answer to us in life is sometimes no, whenever we experience different pains and discomforts and disappointments in life, we... We can struggle with the who of who God is. Sure, in this room, if I went around and we met and we talked, you say, yeah, I believe God is good, that he is gracious. But in our day-to-day life, we actually struggle to believe that he is always good, that he's always gracious to his children. We, like you know, children, wonder, is God withholding good things from me? And here in Genesis 2, we find the answer to that question about the nature of who God is. Is. is he withholding good things from his children? And the answer is an emphatic no. In fact, we find, what we find in Genesis 2 is that he withholds no good thing from his children because he gives us himself, right, the source of all good. And not only does he give us himself, but he actually lives with us. He dwells with us and he invites us to have life with him, to walk with him in all of our life. And this is what we're going to find as we look at the second chapter of Genesis this morning. But before we dive in as a way of introduction, just one thing kind of more technical that I want to say about Genesis 2 that can be kind of confusing for, for us modern readers, because there's a lot of repetition between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And some of these repetitions or things that seem different can actually seem like they contradict each other, so much so that it seems some people argue that there's actually two different creation accounts happening. So a couple of these problems, for instance, are here. Like in, in chapter 1, we read that on day 3, plants and vegetation were created. Um, and yet here, we find on day 6, you know, that where man was created, that there was no, no bushes or of the field and, and no small plants. Another problem that you find between these two accounts is that the name of God actually changes in Hebrew. So in, in, in chapter 1, uh, he's called God or Elohim is what he is in Hebrew. And then in, in chapter 2, the, the way that God is talked about is changes to Lord God, which is Yahweh Elohim, which is the, gives the covenant name of God. And so it could, could look like maybe there's two different authors here writing this, um, and maybe that's distinct of these two different authors. So what's happening here in Genesis 2? Why do we have Genesis 2? Uh, you know these problems, which can seem difficult, actually have fairly simple solutions. Uh, if you've ever looked at an atlas before, you might find, for instance, the state of Washington, and it shows you the whole state of Washington, all its its boundaries and borders. And then maybe in the bottom right corner, it's going to have a zoomed-in look at a place like Seattle, right? The biggest city in our state. It'll kind of zoom in, look on it to kind of give you the details of of Seattle. And this is kind of what's happening in chapter two. We're going to kind of get in this zoomed-in account of how God created humans, right? Genesis one gives you this broad overview of, of all of creation. And then chapter two kind of zooms in on, on what was happening on, on day six. But you might ask those questions that I, those problems that I you know, brought up. What about this rearranging of creation days? It seems like it's disordered here in chapter two. Well, when we look at actually the details, something different's happening here in, in verse five, it says, when no bush of the field when no small plant of the field, there's this important word here, um, of the field. And when this term is used throughout uh, the Old Testament, it's used to talk about cultivation. It's referring to cultivated plants or uh, agriculture. This is what Moses is writing here about agriculture, saying that, listen, there was no man yet to till the ground, to plant rows of potatoes yet. Right? He's, he's, no agriculture was happening. That's what he was talking about. And so that kind of resolves the first problem. Well, what about the the names that I brought up? Well, the different use of the name of God actually gives us insight into the kind of God who created all things. Uh, Yahweh is the covenant name of God that he gives to his people, which means he is the God who is in relationship with his people. And the author of this book, Moses, is trying to showcase this and the personal nature of the God uh, who created humans in his image. All right, the fact that God gave himself a name means that he can be known and he wants to be known by us and wants to know us. And so it's, it's really showing us that the God who created all things and created humans is the God who invites us into life with him. And, and that's kind of what I, I wanna focus on this morning is the God who desires to live life with his people. And there's, there's three aspects uh, to our life that he shows us That I'm borrowing some from others uh, here. And, and they're these, that life with God is a gift the life with God is worship, and that life with God is covenantal. So first, life with God is a gift. We see this here happening at verse 7. It says, right then, the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Here we see the beginning of, of humanity as Adam is birthed from the ground, and one question you got to think is like, well, what did Adam do to deserve being made? Well, nothing. He was he was dirt. Dirt doesn't do anything; it just hangs out. And uh, and so God bends down into the dirt, into the dust, and he begins forming the man, right? Forming all his parts. And uh, not only did he shape him and form him, but what does he do? See, he breathes the breath of life into him. And the word for breath here is the same word for for spirit. And so it's this idea that he breathes. He breathes his spirit into this man, bringing him to life by sharing part of himself with him. We get this idea. Life is, a, is this profound gift that's freely given, that's breathed into us. You know, when Jen and I first got married, we found ourselves traveling Europe. And one of the places we traveled to was the Louvre in Paris. And it's, you know it's this massive art museum. It's hard to take in in one day. But I tried... Because that's just who I am. And, uh, you know, at, so at the end of the day, we found ourselves finally wandering through where all the statues were. I'm not much of a statue guy. But when you see these amazing statues in real life, they're pretty impressive. From the works of Michelangelo to unknown artists from first century B.C. are there. And the detail of the, the men and women and the scenes that are cast in stone is incredible. I mean, it's almost as if they were alive. If you were walking down that corridor, like in the nighttime, it would be kind of freaky. Um, But, you know, of course, they're not alive, and as amazing as they they are, uh, they're only a pale reflection of what God was building on day six. You know, Michelangelo, he had a template for his creations, right? He'd seen humans before. He was a human. And uh, uh, God created all humanity and all things just out of the imagination of his mind, forming all of you. And not only did he, he form you, but he actually brought you to life. He made you a living creature, it says. As amazing as those statues I saw were, as amazing as Michelangelo was, he couldn't breathe his life and bring the, those creations to life. He, he couldn't give life his life to his statues. But this is exactly what we find God doing in the garden. God shares his life with his creation. He shares his life with you, and it's his sharing of his life that brings you to life. Life with God is this gift that he gives us, not because we earned it or we were good enough, but simply because it brings him joy to do so. And this is not just true of of the garden, but this is true of our life in Christ, that our new life in Christ too is a gift that Jesus, just as God breathed life into Adam, his spirit into Adam. So we're brought into new life as Christ breathes his spirit into us. God pursues us and gives us this gift of faith. To believe, and we read this in Ephesians 2, in our words of comfort this morning, that life with God is a gift. And this is God's first instinct towards you. God's first instinct towards you, towards humanity, is to give. It's not to withhold, but to give all of himself to you, because God is the giver of life. This is a truth that's easy to forget in our day-to-day lives. And because we experience pains and discomfort in life, we have this first instinct which maybe thinks that God is someone that we have to keep happy so he won't abandon us. Like it's up to us to keep this great gift um, of life. Uh, Like his love is contingent on us being lovable. But one of the things Genesis 2 is clear about and shows us is the great love and care of God the Father who shares his life with us as children. And he continues to do so. And it's not even thwarted at all, even in our sin. This truth is actually echoed, and you see this relationship in Psalm 103, 11 to 14. I'm going to read it here for you. It says this. You're probably familiar with it. It says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Listen to this. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This is the creation account, is, is in mind here of, of the psalmist in Psalm 103 that God knows our frame and he breathed the breath of life into us. He knows that we're weak, he knows that sin will happen, uh, but his steadfast love is still not because we've earned it, but simply because he desires to love you no matter what, to pursue you to the ends of the earth. This is God's first instinct towards us is grace. Right? Undeserved merit. Uh, life with God begins and ends with God, and it's a gift that He freely gi- gives. A gift that He gave while we were still dirt, while well, while we were still dead. He 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 breathes His life into us. And when this deep truth about God, right, that He is gracious, begins to seep into our souls, which it takes a lifetime. Right, usually it, it the grace of God begins to really seep into your soul when you're deeply forgiven by somebody when you actually experience it in day-to-day life, that's usually when we tend to wonder, is this really true? And when the grace of God seeps down into your soul, you can't help but respond in worship, in awe of God. Uh, And he's the great initiator of, of all things, giving us his life, and our response is one of worship. And this is the second thing we see here, that life with God is worship. Well, you know, you might I'm sure most of you are probably familiar with this passage. You might look at it and you say, well, Craig, listen, I don't see the word worship anywhere here. What are you talking about? Well, you know, whenever you're trying to interpret scripture, especially, you know, Old Testament, but all of scripture, one of the questions you always need to ask is, well, who, was the, who were the first readers of this and how would they have read this text? And remember, this was written by the hand of Moses, given to the people of Israel while they were wandering in the desert for 40 years, right before they went into the promised land. And verse 12 would have begun to, to trigger images of worship. Let me read this here for you again. And the gold of the land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stones are there. And maybe you've read this before and you've read past these details and thought, well, this is oddly specific. Thanks for the information. You know, next verse. But When the Israelites read this, they would think worship because in the desert, the Israelites were instructed to build a tabernacle so God can meet with his people, a place of worship. And in that tabernacle, what do you find? You find everything covered with gold. Gold is everywhere. And you find onyx stones that were used in the decor, and they were put on the robes of the priests, and as they read this and read these things, they would start to make these connections of these two, and they would think, Oh, so our worship in the tabernacle is actually not the, the template of worship. It's actually modeled after Eden. What this tells us is Adam's work in the garden was a work of worship worship takes place in the garden as a response to this gift of life he can't help but live all of life in worship as he's been given life and this theme is actually developed even more in verse 15 when it says this the lord god took the man and put him in the garden of eden to work it and keep it so these words Translate here is work and keep, and my translation may be work and protect or work and guard in yours. Uh, they're the same words, exact words, used to describe the work of the Levites, which was a priestly tribe. These are the people who were the, the pastors of the day. And what is this telling us? It's like Adam's work in the garden was priestly. Even the Levites' work was actually modeled after Adam's work. Adam's work was worship. All of his life with God was worship. And you know, if you would have asked Adam. You know, when is the, when is the, when is the worship service uh, on Sunday? He, was, he would have handed you a shovel, right? He, it wasn't this isolated time. It was all of life. Uh, he was to work and guard this. And this is this picture of this eternity, a new creation of one day what we look forward to is, is, is this uninterrupted work, right? In the same trip that Jen and I took uh, to, to the Louvre, uh, I met a, a man in a different place and had a conversation with him. Uh, and he was telling me he didn't like the idea of heaven Uh, Because in his mind, heaven was just a place where basically they have a Sunday morning worship service uh, with no end time. In his mind, it was singing Christian radio music forever, which doesn't sound like a good thing to me. Um, But what we learn here is that all of life is actually meant to be uh, happening in the presence of God. Which means all of life is meant to be done in worship. Not just this moment, but every moment. Adam's work in the garden from raising children to tilling the ground to everything that he did was worship. And when you live life with God, all of your life then is an opportunity of worship from digging trenches to balancing spreadsheets, to changing diapers, all of it. You know, as Paul writes, echoes this truth in first Corinthians 10, he says this, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is, this is our role. In life, life with God is worship. Everything you do is an opportunity for worship. You know, one aspect of our work that we see in, in worship here is uh, is protecting the sacred life of, of, of worship. The, the word here to, to work, to, the word uh, to guard means to protect, which means part of part of our work is protecting against intruders who try to pull people from a life of worship, which we'll see the fruit of that in a couple weeks when we get into Genesis 3. But as just a a quick aside uh, for men particularly, and we'll talk more about marriage and those things next week. But here, since this call was given explicitly to Adam before Eve was created, I think it means something unique for men. And uh, men have a responsibility to guard and protect that is uh, unique to us, and it's part of your priestly duty. And one of the things this means is we're called to protect our families and homes from intruders, to have courage, to fight, to be brave. You know, sometimes these characteristics can be looked down upon as, as if they're the result of the fall. But here we find that they are pre-fall uh, requirements for Adam, where Adam failed miserably in, right? He had no courage. Uh, but it's, it's our lack of courage and cowardice that are actually the result of the fall. So what does this practically look like for us Um, Well, for one, I think to be priestly for men means you need to know your Bibles, right? The word in the New Testament is called the sword, right? To have your sword sharpened for the battle ahead means to know the word. It's a question for the men in this room. Do you know the word? Uh, Do you meditate on it so that you can tell the difference between foe and friend? First aspect of protection means to know God's word. And in fact, you know, uh, we'll get into this in a few weeks in Genesis 3. But one of the problems, they, did, they didn't know God's word. And that's one of the reasons why the intruder came in and re- was able to deceive Adam and Eve. Uh, a second aspect of, of this uh, for the men is, you know, when conflict comes into your home, it's a man's responsibility to be the leader, to lead the family to the grace of God. Like one of the things this means is the duty of the man is to be a chief confessor. Men, do you confess your sins to your families? These are hard things to do. Uh, but when you do this, it means that you actually trust that God is gracious and God is kind and you're leading your family to this. And the third last thing I want to say about this is, is the idea of prayer. I think an an aspect of protection is prayer, uh, which prayer shows a profound dependence on God to help you in your life. Are you praying? This is part of your priestly duty to protect from intruders who seek to destroy the household of worship. So life with God, we find, is this gift that leads us into worship where we recognize all of life is walking with him, even this idea of protecting, it's very good, it's full of joy, all of life devoted to God, all our work is sacred in a way. But our problem with this, and just like our problem last week we mentioned, is that we don't live in the pre-fall moment anymore, right? We live in a world where our worship has been interrupted, where the intruder already has come in, where Adam failed to protect We live life in the desert. So how are we supposed to live a life of worship and to live this gift that God's given us in life, in in grace? How are we supposed to live this life when we don't dwell with God like Adam did pre-fall? This leads to the third final thing we're going to see here, is that life with God is covenantal. Life with God is covenantal. So because life with God is a covenant, it means that God makes a way for us to have life with him, even in an interrupted world. And to really understand this, I'm just going to briefly explain a little bit about what covenants are, what covenant theology is, because it will help us understand what's happening here. So briefly, you know, covenants are simply how God deals with his people. The word covenant defines how God relates to his creation and shows us that God's desires to dwell with his people, that he made to be a part of his people, even in uh, the fall. And in every covenant, God is the initiator that, that comes to us. And he makes these binding agreements that gives both blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. In the Bible, we, we, we talk about two categories of covenants that he makes with his people. The covenant of works is what we find here. and The covenants of grace is what we find outside of the garden. And in the garden here, we find the covenant of works here with Adam in verse 16 to 17. he says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You know, my professor, my professor would say this, you know, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, then it's a, it's a duck. Um, right, the word covenant is not here in this text, but the components of a covenant are. right. There's a blessing if, for obedience, life. There's this rule to follow and a, a curse if this rule is broken. Right? Don't eat of this tree or you surely will die. It's often called the covenant of works or covenant of life where if Adam obeyed, right, he would have life but if he did not, he would die. And you know, one of the first things you notice about this covenant though is that God's instincts here again, first instincts towards Adam after the gift of life is giving abundantly to him. Right? He says you can have everything here. So just one thing that you can't have, uh, this tree. I think our, our tendency is similar to a child's. It's like you can tell a child, listen, you have every toy in this in this room, but I'm just going to, not this one little toy car. You can't have that. And what's a child going to do? Well, the first thing he's going to do is just run towards that that little toy car that you told him he could not have. Even though there was millions of cars, this one car that he couldn't have, he wants. Um, and I and we do this because at the end of the day, we wonder, well, if, if, is, is the thing that's being held back the best thing? Maybe that thing that's being held from us is, is a good thing. It's the best thing. And we think maybe God is holding back from us, keeping something to himself. And yeah, this other stuff, it's great. I, I love these other trees, but what about that tree? And uh, but that, that's actually not what's happening at all here. As one pastor friend puts it, he says this. He says, what is that tree that's being held back? Well, if this tree that's being held back tells you what is good and evil, then this tree is giving you a rule book, right? The tree is a law. And what God is saying is this, listen, if you eat of this tree, it means that you want to make your own rules and your own laws apart from God. And God is saying, listen, I've invited you into this relationship with me. You can come and talk to me. You don't need to go to this tree for an information. Ask me, I will teach you. I will show you everything. You know, in, in chapter three, when Satan comes and offers this tree, what he's offering the people is, is, is a life autonomous from God. And God saying no to this tree is not him holding back good things. It is him saying, I don't want you to be cut off from me. It's him saying, I, I want to walk with you. To eat of this tree is to be, cut ourselves off from life with God. It's like a parent saying, I don't want you to play in the street, child. Not because I don't love you, because I don't want you to die. And uh, you know, one other important aspect about covenants that you find here that impacts us is that there's always covenant uh, heads and representatives to the people. And so, you know, when Adam, the first covenant head sins, what that means for us, it means that we all sin because he represented all of humanity. So we're connected to our covenant head. And because of this, this is our break in our worship. This is reality of the life that we live. And the story of scripture is God providing a second covenant head in Christ, where he brings us back into life with him in the covenant of grace, which is this unmerited favor where God pursues his people, and makes a way for a relationship with his people, even though his people disregard him seemingly at every turn. He still pursues. Even though humanity can't keep its side of the covenant, covenant God is the great covenant keeper. Even though he does not have to, he does it. He gives life to his people, even while they sit in darkness. To accomplish this task, he sends the source of all light and all life, his son. And in this covenant, Christ becomes the second Adam for us, right? Right? one who will keep the garden, one who will tend it, one who will do the work that he's required to do, one who lives his life in complete dependence on the Father, who doesn't go and make his own way, but who submits to the Father even though it means his own death. But being the greater Adam, even death can't hold him. And he's raised to new life. And now all united to him in faith, he raises to new life as our second Adam, breathing his breath, his spirit into us. Now that all is, that is his is ours, he is our new head, our new representative who invites us into complete communion with the Father and the Spirit, where the Spirit dwells inside of you and I fully. You see, God has withheld no good thing from you. We know this because he did not even withhold his son from you. Why does he do this? That you might have life with him, because he is the great giver of life. And now we're united to this second Adam in faith. And so our call to new life here is to respond in awe and worship, to learn how to let these great truths seep into our souls, to rest in these profound truths that God is near to you. His instinct towards you is grace. It is favor. It is love. And so our need to train ourselves in worship to never forget our God, is a gracious God whose steadfast love is abounding and he will see you through to the end. And this strengthens you to endure any hardship, any disappointment you face because you can trust that the character of God is a surety regardless of the different things that I experience, working even in the darkness, bringing our salvation to completion until that glorious day when our eyes will behold eternity. May we be a people here who embrace these profound truths that we would ever walk in the light of His grace, knowing that life with God is this profound gift, that is worship, and is bound by the God who is the great covenant keeper. Pray with me. Holy Father, in infinite mercy, in your grace, help us to believe these truths that we know but are hard to actually trust and believe. That you are the God who pursues your people, who created us and who unites us by the power of your son. Encourage our hearts, strengthen us, and send us out as lights in the world of darkness, we pray. Amen.